0: podcast where we explore texts within the Christian tradition. I'm your host, Father Wesley Walker. Before we get started today with everything happening in the world right now, I thought we could start today's episode off with two collects, one for our nation and one almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage. We humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people the multitudes brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. Endue with the spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government that there may be justice and peace at home, and that, through obedience to thy law, we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail, all which we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. O gracious Father, we humbly beseech thee for thy holy Catholic Church, That Thou wouldest be pleased to fill it with all truth and peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Him who died and rose again, and ever liveth to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ, Thy Son, our Lord. Amen. One housekeeping announcement before we get started. The next work we are going to go through after we finish Cordeus Homo by Anselm is Herbert McCabe's great book, God Matters. You can find this on Amazon. There will be a link to it in the show notes. Also, I'll be setting up a discussion group on Facebook, so please contact me via email, wwalker.nashoda.edu, or on Facebook if you'd like to join that. We will be doing a weekly discussion via Zoom which will occur before episodes are released. Well, today, we are on the third of four episodes in our close reading of St. Anselm's Cur Deus Homo, and we'll be covering Book 2, chapters 1 through 11. When we last left Anselm last week, he had concluded the first book with the decisive point that the only way for humanity to receive salvation is through Christ in the Incarnation a point which causes Boso to go into a kind of doxology. So let's dive into book two, which is my favorite of the two books. In the first chapter, Anselm situates the discussion in the context of teleology. Basically, he asks the question, why were humans created in the first place? And to answer that question, he claims that we were made as rational beings by which we, quote, receive the power of discernment, end quote, so that we, quote, might hate and shun evil, and love and choose good, and especially the greater good, end quote. In other words, the rational nature was created to love and choose the highest good supremely for its own sake and nothing else. I was going through this with some former students of mine recently who... And they asked a really good question related to Anselm's teleology, namely, how could humanity have known about good and evil prior to eating from the tree of knowledge and of good and evil? And I think Anselm would answer that there might be a distinction between kinds of knowledge, that Adam and Eve may have possessed a kind of theoretical knowledge prior to the Fall. God said, don't eat of that tree and you'll surely die. They knew they could obey God, which Anselm would characterize as loving and choosing the highest good, and something that they owed to God by virtue of his being their creator, but they also knew that they could disobey God by eating the fruit, and therefore they would die. In eating the fruit of the tree, Adam and Eve gained a kind of experiential knowledge of good and evil. They actually experienced it. It's no longer an abstraction for them. Either way, the clear telos of humanity is clear, that that we should love and enjoy the highest good for its own sake, and the highest good is God. But the fall frustrated that end because it subjected humans to death, and death is not a feature of human existence as we were initially created precisely because of God's justice and wisdom. He wouldn't place his creation under punishment without a wrong that was committed because we were created for eternal blessedness. On this ground, Anselm argues then, that had man never sinned, he never would have died. So according to chapter 3, any theology of restoration, of atonement, must undo the effects of sin. There is some discussion among medievals as to whether restoration would mean a return to the initial state or if it would go even further and be better. So Hugh of St. Victor, for example, would probably say God's economy of salvation restores us in a way that is superior even to the original state. And I think that there's something to this view, and I actually don't think Anselm would disagree with it, though he doesn't specifically endorse one way of thinking about it or over another. That this restoration will occur, then, requires a future resurrection. The effects of the fall were spiritual, namely separation from God, and physical, namely death. So restoration will undo that spiritual separation by establishing union between God and humanity, and it will undo the physical death that we experience through the resurrection. Now this causes Boso to ask an important question. But what shall we say to one who tells us that this is right enough with regard to those in whom humanity shall be perfectly restored, but is not necessary as respects the reprobate? In other words, he's asking about annihilationism, the idea that the human soul of those who die in sin is eventually extinguished and ceases to be. Why would the wicked experience a kind of resurrection, which the Church confesses in the Creed when we say that he will come to judge the quick and the dead? But Anselm affirms the Church's teaching here, everyone is resurrected, and then those who continue in holiness will experience eternal happiness, and those who persevere in wickedness will continue in reprobation. In this way, Anselm brings a significance to the present. Whichever trajectory one finds themselves on in this life will be continued into the next. So at the beginning of chapter 4, we're left in a position where there are two options. Option 1 is that God could complete what he started when he created humanity, which would entail the restoration of fallen creation. Or, option two is that he doesn't complete what he started, which indicates that his initial plan was too lofty for him. And obviously, option two is patently ridiculous for Anselm because it goes back to his ontological argument that God is greater than that which can be conceived. So there is nothing too lofty for him. He's not like me when I start a project that I then can't finish. Further, Anselm says, "...if it be understood that God has made nothing more valuable than rational existence capable of enjoying him, it is altogether foreign from his character to suppose he will suffer that rational existence utterly to perish." So, we can trust that God will finish what he has started. He is, after all, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Boso raises an objection here that I've heard recapitulated in some Reformed circles where they're interested often in preserving God's sovereignty almost over and above other attributes. Namely, that God can't be compelled to secure salvation. Now, before we get to Anselm's answer, I think that there's a distinction we can draw that can help us better understand what he's going to say. And that is the difference between a sort of external and internal compulsion. An external compulsion is being acted on by an outside force. For example, I pay my rent every month because I'm keenly aware of what will happen to me and my family if I don't. We'll get evicted by our landlord who has the law on her side. And so it would be bad for us to not pay the rent. So we pay the rent every month, hopefully on time. But that's different from acting with internal consistency. For example, I am a father. And as a father, I love my sons. I'm not compelled by something outside of myself to love them. I love them because of who I am as their father. Now, I suppose we could appeal to a sense of duty... Uh, that we all have as parents, which is outside of ourselves and therefore points to the fact that analogical thinking is imperfect and limited and falls apart when we apply it back to God. But I think the point still remains that for God to act in consistency with his nature isn't to restrict God in an unbecoming way, but actually lets God be God. It's the freedom that he needs to act. And even then, that wording is somewhat problematic as if God were to need something. Anselm answers Boso's question, then, by preserving divine freedom. God does freely place himself under the necessity of benefiting another without reluctance. His actions, then, are not a necessity for him, but grace extended to us. Any necessity in the situation comes from God acting on account of his unchangeable goodness to complete what he began. His fundamental orientation towards creation is one of love, and he is the one from whom all good things come, which is what St. James tells us in 117. Every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is impassable. Now, chapter 6 places us at a juncture where we need to go back to a point established earlier, namely that God cannot complete what he began except that a payment be made for sin. But payment for sin must be paid by humanity because humanity is the only one who committed the wrong. And the payment we owe has to be greater than the universe itself because we already owe God everything. This poses another metaphysical problem. Anyone who can give something, God something more valuable than all that God possesses must be greater than God. But no being can be greater than God because God is greater than that which can be conceived. So we're left in a tight spot where only God can make the satisfaction, but only humans should make the satisfaction. And so what's required? The God-man. When we talk about the God-man, then, as Anselm does in chapter 7, it's helpful to have the Chalcedonian definition in the back of our minds. Now, the Council of Chalcedon was the fourth of seven ecumenical councils, and it was held in 451. The major issue that the council faced was the Christological heresy of Eutychianism, which was initially promulgated in response to the heresy of Nestorianism. Reactions and overreactions. Nestorianism can be described as radical diophysitism. Namely, it emphasized a kind of disunity between the divine and human in Christ. Nestorians tried to replace the concept of a hypostatic union, that is, a union between two natures, with a prosopic union, that is, saying Christ is a union of two persons. Eutychianism, then, is imbalanced in the opposite way because it posited a kind of monophysitism, that in Jesus there is a singular, divine nature. So Chalcedon produced an important definition, which is as follows, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, the Theotokos. One in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So Anselm is careful, then, to hedge against Christological heresies when he explains the incarnation. We cannot conceive of the incarnation in a way that would posit an oscillation between the divinity and humanity, as if he were divine in some moments and human in the others. Further, we cannot conceive of the incarnation in such a way that one would be absorbed by the other. He can't be more human than divine or more divine than human. If we don't avoid these errors, then the incarnation would be ineffective because it wouldn't truly be a union between humanity and divinity. Both natures must be present because God doesn't owe a debt and humanity cannot pay the debt. So the atonement requires the same being to be perfect God and perfect man, which is why we have to agree with the Chalcedonian definition and insist that Christ has two natures, divine and human, which are united in his singular person. Once we accept the Chalcedonian definition, however, we have to ask two subsequent questions. First, is the God-man born from humans, or created outside of the genealogy of humanity like Adam was at the initial creation? And second, what is the most appropriate way for him to be born? To the first question, the God-man must be born from the genealogy of Adam in order to redeem the fallen humanity. If he was born from outside of that genealogy, you would have two humanities that weren't in union with one another a descendant of Adam must be the one to redeem Adam and his race. Now the second question is an interesting one. How is the most appropriate way for him to be born? There are four ways that Anselm lists that that a human can come to exist. The first is through sexual union between a man and a woman. This is the normal means by which we are all created and therefore lacks the nobility and purity fitting For the god-man. Another way a person can be created is from neither man nor woman. This is how Adam was created originally, but it cannot be the means by which Christ became human for the reasons given to the first question. A third path for existence is to come into existence via a man only without a woman. This is, after all, how Eve was created, from a rib from Adam's side. So this leaves only one possibility, one which was not accomplished prior to the first Christmas, that is, being born just from a woman, a virgin birth. God chose this way to bring about the Incarnation, which is fitting because Eve, a virgin, was the way that humanity fell. And this causes him to go back to the cloud discussion which occurred between Boso and Anselm all the way back at the beginning of Book 1, when Boso said that the parallelisms Anselm was crafting to initial creation and to reconciliation are akin to painting on clouds when presented to the pagans. So here, Anselm states, quote, "...paint not therefore upon baseless emptiness, but upon solid truth, and tell how clearly fitting it is, That as a man's sin and the cause of our condemnation sprung from a woman, so the cure of sin and the source of our salvation should also be found in a woman, and that women may not despair of attaining the inheritance of the blessed, because that so dire an evil arose from woman, it is proper that from woman also so great a blessing should arise, that their hopes may be revived. Take also this view. If it was a virgin which brought all evil upon the human race, it is much more appropriate that a virgin should be the occasion of all good. And this also, if woman whom God made from man alone was made of a virgin, it is peculiarly fitting for that man also who shall spring from a woman to be born of a woman without man. Of the pictures which can be superadded to this, showing that the God-man ought to be born of a virgin, we will say nothing. These are sufficient, end quote. The next question, which is raised, is which person of the Trinity takes on the human nature? Now, there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Why would the Son be the one to become incarnate? Why not the Father? Why not the Holy Ghost? Well, if one of the other members became incarnate, there would, by definition, be two sons in the Trinity. You'd have the Son of God and the Son of the Virgin. This would be imbalanced. Further, he points out that if the Father became incarnate, you'd have two grandsons in the Trinity because the Father would be the grandson of Mary's parents, traditionally named Joachim and Anne, and the Son of God would be the grandson of Mary because he is the son of the Father. So it's most fitting for the Son to become incarnate because it's the Son who prays to the Father. Further, the Son is the image of God, we're told throughout Scripture, and it is important for him to become incarnate because the devil and humans have set up false likenesses of God, so the image needs needs to come as a corrective. Therefore, the divine and human natures must unite in one person, and it is most fitting for that person to be the Word. Now that we've established the necessity, the mode, and the means of the incarnation, Anselm moves us into a discussion of the impeccability of Christ in chapter 10. Impeccability means that he couldn't sin, and Anselm says, We ought not to question whether this man was about to die as a debt, as all other men do. For if Adam would not have died had he not committed sin, much less should this man suffer death, in whom there can be no sin, for he is God. And this causes Boso to ask, another question based on a concern about necessity. He appeals this time to a biblical text, John chapter 8, verse 55, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, But you have not known God. I know him. If I said I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. The if-then nature of the statement means Jesus is saying he could sin by lying, Boso thinks. In turn, Anselm reminds us of a fundamental truth about anthropology, which is namely that power follows will. I'm willing to speak right now, and therefore my lips are moving, and I'm producing sound being shaped into words. Further, the exception proves the rule. The reason paralysis is a serious medical condition is because it disconnects will from power. One wants to move, but cannot. So Christ's power is not impeded. If he willed, he could lie, but he can't will to lie, because A, he can't be externally forced to lie, because he's God, and B, he cannot wish to lie, also because he's God. This again raises a further necessity question from Boso. Has Anselm required holiness to be an external necessity that doesn't spring from free will? God made human an- humans and angels with free choice, which is why holiness is significant. But God isn't like humans. His holiness prevents him from sinning, and so he should be praised for it, because he has holiness from himself. Which then causes Boso to ask another question. Well, why didn't God create humans and angels so that they were incapable of sinning? And this question generates some scorn from Anselm. He he basically chastises him. Do you know what you're asking? And that's because the creature isn't the same as God and it wouldn't be possible or right for them to be the same. So creaturely, free will enables us to participate in divine holiness, but there's a distinction. We participate in holiness, but he is holiness. And so here we press up against that metaphysical gap that exists between the creature and the creator. And so we arrive at chapter 11, a final question for today. Is it possible for the god-man to die? Anselm asks. Since he can't sin, he's not subject to death. And Boso does say that every man is mortal, perhaps an allusion to the famous syllogism promulgated by the philosophers. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. But Anselm offers a corrective here. Mortality is only essential to a corrupted human. Prior to the sin of our first parents, they were really human and, as established earlier, immortal. Further, at the bodily resurrection, humans will still be really humans, so corruption and incorruption aren't essential to human nature, they're accidental, but they can be responsible for our happiness and unhappiness. So can the God-man die if he's not corrupted? Anselm says yes he can, because the God-man is God, and therefore omnipotent. He can choose to avoid death or he can die and rise again. But notice the crux of his point here. The Godman is not externally compelled to die. He freely lays down his life. After St. Peter cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden, Jesus rebukes Peter and asks, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So here Jesus is making it clear that he lays down his life so that it can be taken, not that it's taken from him unwillingly. And he does that because of the debt humanity owes God, which must be paid with a gift greater than anything God possesses in creation. It must be found from in himself. The God-man ought not to die. It's not properly just. He didn't sin, and therefore he's not subject to the consequences of sin. But he freely chose to die anyways, and in so doing he sets us free from the devil and paid our debt. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It is here that I think Anselm emphasizes an important point, too. The cross is not purely external to us. While, yes, Christ paid a debt that we couldn't pay on our own, we don't keep the cross at a distance. But rather, in living and dying, Christ provides humanity an example, and the cross becomes a participatory reality. Anselm says, "...for who can say how necessary and wise a thing it was for him who was to redeem mankind, and lead them back by his teaching from the way of death and destruction into the path of life and eternal happiness, when he conversed with men, and when he taught them by his personal intercourse, to set them an example himself of the way in which they ought to live? But how could he have given this example to weak and dying men? that they should not deviate from holiness because of injuries or scorn or tortures or even death, had they not been able to recognize all these virtues in himself, Close quote. So Ansel mentions this here to refute another atonement theory, namely the moral influence theory, which was advocated by Peter Abelard. According to this theory, the life and death of Jesus was a demonstration of God's love and providing us an example we could follow to turn back to God. And this theory gets a lot of flack, and it should when it's taken up in isolation from the other theories. When it's taken up in isolation from the other theories, it can often border on Pelagianism. But it's an important facet of Christ's life and death that he provides us this example, that that the cross is a thing in which we participate. Christ dies to free us from the tyranny of Satan. He dies to pay the double debt that we owe to God. And he dies to show us God's love and provide us a template whereby we can become more human. These are all three interrelated features of the atonement that can't stand in isolation from the others. We need all three. Well, thank you for listening to From Cell to Wine Cellar, a close reading podcast. Our theme song is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Sarenik. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter, and while you're subscribing to things, make sure also to follow the Sacramentalist Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime...